Hello, it's Tuesday, November the 2nd. This is the Andrew Pearce Show and it's coming from the Daily Mail newsroom. Coming up... High-tech new pillows which claim to be able to cure everything from snoring to tinnititis. But do they work? We'll be getting the latest on the plan for a meat tax by the vegan society. Let me tell you, that is never, ever going to happen. Also, construction of smart motorways. It's been a Daily Mail campaign. A committee of MPs saying work on smart motorways must be halted without delay. And from COP26, more than 100 world leaders have called for an end to deforestation. But will Brazil sign up to it? So more than 100 world leaders have committed to halt and reverse forest loss and land degradation by 2030. They include heavily forest nations such as Brazil and Indonesia. The pledge came at this week's COP26 in Glasgow. It amounts to almost £14 billion in funding. Presently, an area of forest the size of 27 football pitches is lost every minute. I'm joined now by Joe Eisen, who's Executive Director of the Rainforest Foundation UK, who's at COP26. Joe, this all sounds great, but haven't I heard a pledge like this similar to perhaps at the Paris Climate Change Conference or at a previous climate change summit? Yes, this is, certainly has uh, many similarities to, to, to previous announcements, uh, albeit a, a much larger scale. Uh, the one that springs to mind is the, the 2014 uh, New York Declaration on Forests, where, where global leaders and corporations pledged to, to halve deforestation by 2020 and end it completely by 2030. So it, 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 it's been said before, um, and uh, there's, there's a lot of need for, for more detail and meat on the bones of, these, of this big, big announcement. And it's encouraging, of course, that Brazil and Indonesia are involved in this, but the president of Brazil, Bolsonaro, is a law unto himself. Do you have any faith that he is genuinely going to be committed to ending deforestation of his country in less than 10 years' time? I think we have to take uh, uh, his 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 uh, signing onto this declaration with a uh, a, b- a big dose of uh, scepticism. Um, he's shown very little commitment to to forests or the the rights of indigenous people that live in these forests. And I think the risk is that once all the noise and the euphoria of of COP26 dies down, that that that, that we see a reneging of the uh, of the commitments and and a return to business as usual. Yeah, now I'd like you to explain to me why it's so important, but effectively forests are the lungs of the planet, aren't they? They are indeed, yeah. It's, it's estimated that, that, that forests can account for up to a third uh, of the total climate solution. Um, what's often overlooked is they're also the home of, uh, you know, to hundreds of millions of local and indigenous communities who, who live yeah. and depend on these areas. Um, so protecting forests is, is important for the climate, for biodiversity and, and for human rights of some of the, the poorest and, 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 and uh, the poorest people that are least responsible for the climate and, and biodiversity crises. And, and, and these forests, they absorb about a third of the global CO2 that's released from burning fossil fuels every year. Is that about right, that figure? It, um, that, that's certainly on the on the upper upper end of the scale. Right. Um, um, one of the risks uh, is that uh, um, people um, use, uh, you know, for example, corporations might use uh, 
forests or, or so-called other nature-based solutions in in order to offset their own emissions or delay uh, offsetting you know delay cutting their own emissions at source so I think um, you know um, while we very much welcome the big announcement on forests um, it should in no way be a, uh, a distraction for the for the urgent need to decarbonize our own economies yeah uh, and um, and how important is it um, Joe, that this does this time the commitments that they made in 2014 when it simply didn't happen that this time it does work that they really do stop the deforestation why is it so important can you spell that out i think uh, you know we're, we're at a, crit- a critical moment uh in in the fight against climate change uh there's there's, there's been many hollow uh, commitments and false storms before so it's really important that we learn the lessons from the past um, and and tackle the root causes of deforestation and one of the things that the rainforest foundation uk are concerned about is there's lots of focus on on market-based mechanisms to to protect forests to create carbon credits these have been shown time and again um, to be deeply problematic and unworkable and, and, and unworkable um, so while the UK and other governments are signing big uh, agreements with, with, with countries like the DR Congo, Brazil and Indonesia. Um, at the same time, for example, the, the, the Congolese government has announced plans to open up some of the last remaining intact tropical forests on Earth to industrial logging. Yeah. So I think, I think in order to really get to the root causes of deforestation and, and to chart a better future, we really need to stop the talk um, and, and coming up with these very complex and unworkable uh, solutions, but really getting to the core of the issues. All right, that's Joe Eisen. He's Executive Director of the Rainforest Foundation UK, who's talking to us uh, from COP26. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free and in full, along with our podcast and our video series. Remember to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. The Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, she's an ambitious politician with one eye on the Tory leadership. She's already dismissed calls for the, for the British government to introduce a meat tax. She says it's really important we support our fantastic British farming industry. Uh, campaigners had called for a tax on meat on Monday, World Vegan Day. A report last year said that 20% of Britain's uh, carbon emissions come from food production and consumption, with red meat particularly damaging to the climate. I'm joined now by Louise Davis, who's Chief Executive of the vegan society it's those cows isn't it when they're burping and whatever else they're doing they're pushing a lot of methane louise into the atmosphere absolutely that's the problem um, about a third of our greenhouse gas emissions come from agriculture and the, the majority is animal farming and the majority of that is ruminant animals so cows and uh, sheep um, which are, are really part of the problem and um, I actually I agree with a lot of what Liz says, actually, you might be surprised to hear, but, um, you know, we do need to support farmers to be more sustainable. And, and there's lots of moves to try and encourage the um, farming industry to do that. But they really are ignoring the key issue, which is the animals that they're rearing and, and the inherent problems that there are really in terms of uh, methane emissions. What do you want to happen? Because the animals, uh, do, when, the, when the animals die or when they're slaughtered for meat, that farmers stop replacing them and perhaps divest into alternative forms of agriculture. Is that what you're pressing for? Yes, certainly. So, um, you know, rather than a meat tax, really, we're encouraging government to act at the point of production and encourage the subsidy system to change. So 
rather than us paying farmers to produce um, feed, which is in inherently bad for the environment and, and in some cases bad for our health as well, to shift those subsidies and encourage farmers to transition towards growing more plant proteins, which would be uh, much more uh, beneficial for the environment and, and very good for our health as well. Um, that's not possible for, for all farmers. I mean, you know, there is going to be some land that just wouldn't be suitable for that kind of growing. But actually, if we shift our land use out of animal agriculture and towards plant protein, we don't need as much land in the food system. So that land can be used for other things, for biodiversity benefits, which we know is also something that we should be hugely concerned about. So the, yeah. the science tells us that the solutions are there, but what we do need to see is um, some political will, really, to, to support this transition. Yeah. Um, now, is it is it the worst offender, in your view, the far farming industry, in terms of CO2 emission, or are there other uh, areas that the government should be looking at as well, in your view, which are as equally uh, uh, polluting? Well, of course, I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of the Vegan Society and sure. our concerns around animal agriculture go beyond just the environment. You know, we think it's an inherently exploitative um, uh, system and, and we don't need to use animals in that way. Um, if you're looking at the environmental um, side of things, of course, there are other issues such as energy and such as transport. Um, but if you look at those, you are seeing government action. So we're seeing investment in renewables and, you know, all these things need to be sped up. Um, we're seeing support for electric vehicles, but we're not seeing any single government inter intervention that encourages people to eat more plant-based foods or for us to be producing more plant-based foods. So there's a real uh, issue where we're lagging behind when it comes to food and farming and much further behind than any other sector, which is, a, is, a, is the problem. Trouble is with this country, we like our meat and two veg, don't we? <laughs> Well, I think this is one of the issues as well. We really need to educate people because I think, you know, there is a stereotype around vegan food. People think it's boring, it's dull, and it's not tasty. And I think, you know, if we could educate people and try and support them to access cheap, you know, affordable plant-based foods to, you know, give these products a, a go in their own kitchen. Or one of the things we're calling for is for plant-based foods to be on every school menu, for example, and every hospital menu. So you know, starting at a young age, a child going to school would always be offered a plant-based option as standard. So they're not going to grow up thinking that a meal has to be meat and two veg. They'll grow up knowing that they could be having a lentil bolognese or a chickpea curry or whatever it might be. And just trying to change those kind of, yeah, stereotypical ways of thinking. Um, but, but we are seeing some, some positive changes anyway. So our research shows that I think 37% of people this year are either cutting down animal products or removing them completely. So there is some move amongst the public. You know, you'll know there's a huge vegan trend, loads of vegan restaurants popping up and plant milks on every supermarket shelf and loads of alternatives. So all these things are kind of happening anyway, and that's without any government intervention. So imagine how quickly we could move this transition on if we actually just had, uh, you know, somebody in government saying a good thing for you to do people is to go vegan yeah. or to eat more plant-based foods and there's, there's a huge reluctance to do that because i think people worry that or certainly politicians worry that they shouldn't be telling people what to eat but in many ways they are anyway you know we've got the sugar tax we've got you know we re remove other harmful things from our society so this is something that really needs to be considered and we need politicians to step up and, and show some leadership and just finally louise what is your favorite vegan dish oh well, I'm a big fan of Mexican food, so I like uh, tacos with some black beans, lentils and mushrooms and tofu um, with some salsa and maybe some avocados, although easy on the avocado because obviously not, not every vegan food is, is good for the environment. No, because don't they say avocados are bad for the environment? 
yeah, I mean, this is the thing. Vegans seem to get penalised for, for the avocado consumption in the UK, which I'm sure it's really not just vegans that are eating them. Um, but yeah, this is, you know, we all, we all need to be thinking about everything, you know, thinking about what we eat and choosing the most sustainable foods. So, um, but there are many factors to our food system. And, and I would also say, you know, let's think about the, the harm we're causing the animals themselves as well as the environment. All right, that's Louise Davis. She's Chief Executive of the Vegan Society. Thanks for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and much more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at Mel Plus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. A committee of MPs say construction of smart motorways must be halted now. The damning report accuses transport chiefs and civil servants of pressing ahead with the roads despite major concerns. 53 people have died on the roads in the four years to 2019, with at least 18 of them attributed directly to the smart motorways. I'm joined now by Claire Mercer, who's the widow of Jason, who was killed on a smart motorway. Claire, thanks so much for coming on. Um, If you could just explain a smart motorway, which, of course, they're anything but, in my view, it's where the, the hard shoulder is removed to try and assist the flow of traffic. And if a driver breaks down the lay-bys are sent about 1.5 miles apart. Is that basically how they work? Yep, that's pretty much it. So um, you'd have to hope that your car chooses a very convenient point to break down. Yes. Now, um, of course, and there's been great problems with the, with the signposting and the signalling on the motorways when, 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 when the uh, lay-bys are coming up. Can you explain, if you can bear to talk about it, Claire, what happened to Jason? Yes, he, he, it was only a minor collision that should have not ended the way it did. He had a minor collision with another motorist. Uh, they were in the third and fourth lane. They were still capable, their vehicles were still capable of moving. Uh, but the only information they had was a large sign right where they were that said no hard shoulder for four miles. Two and a half years ago, we knew less about smart motorways than we do now. So I don't even know if my husband knew what one was and that he was on mm, one. No. Um, the cameras showed the moving for quite a while. They took quite a while to, to move over to the first lane and they continued for a while to try and find a safer place to stop. They couldn't find anywhere. Um, the, there was no signs to tell them that there was an emergency refuge area a mile out of sight. Um, so they, the only option they had was to pull over where they could because it is your legal obligation to stop mm. after an accident. Mm. So they pulled over where they could, but the crash barrier stopped them getting their vehicles right out of the running lane, and they themselves couldn't get over the crash barrier because there was a 30-foot drop onto the slip road below. Yeah. So they, they were just left in harm's way, and they were there for, I mean, minutes disappear quickly. They were there for six minutes, um, swapping details, taking photographs of the of the damage, and then I assume they would have been on their way. But unfortunately, um, a, vi- a, a HGV ploughed into them and killed them. But he shouldn't have even been in the same lane. If Highways England had not taken away the hard shoulder, the lorry would have been in a separate lane, but it wasn't. So it ploughed into them, killed them instantly, and they were dead across four lanes of the traffic. It was seen to utter carnage because the HGV hit a transit van and a large car. So the debris and the carnage was just spread across all four lanes. Even then, the technology did not pick them up. And it relied on members of the public phoning in and saying, for the love of God, close the motorway. And so even for six minutes before, while they were still alive, nothing picked them up. And for six minutes after they were dead, nothing picked them up. The technology just either isn't there or doesn't work and it should have protected them and it just left them, it it just dumped them in harm's way and there was absolutely nothing to protect them. 
How does it make you feel to know that the government are, st- are still pressing ahead with the construction of more motorways? This com- report by this committee of MPs says it has to stop and stop now. But Grant Shapps, the Transport Secretary, blithely insisting that smart motorways are safer than conventional motorways. Well, that's cherry-picked data because there is currently less than 200 miles of smart motorway. But there is 1,500 miles of conventional motorway. So they're comparing less than 200 to over 1,500. It's very disingenuous, and that is me being polite. And so they just constantly throw around this cherry-picked data. But just leave the data alone and just think about this. What is possibly more dangerous, breaking down in a live lane or breaking down on a hard shoulder? I know hard shoulders are dangerous, but they're a lot less dangerous than a live lane. And also, once there is an incident, how on earth are emergency vehicles meant to get anywhere? Time and time again, the emergency vehicles are blocked in. With Jason and Alexandro, they were dead instantly. There was never going to be any emergency vehicles needed to get to them. They tried to get a helicopter to them, but by the the time the helicopter got there, it was told to not even land because it was too late. But the other side of that, though, is they were killed at 8.15 in the morning. Their bodies were still on the road over six hours later. Because if the emergency vehicles can't get through, the coroner can't get through to release the scene. The undertaker can't get through with the coffins. Their bodies were there eight hours later because absolutely nobody could get through. None of this will bring your husband back, Claire, but your hope must be that um, perhaps somebody in government will listen to this committee of MPs. They've not listened to you, despite your spirited campaigning. Yes, but again, why is a parliamentary committee, why have we paid yet another parliamentary transport select committee to sit down and talk about this again, as as, as well as the other 10 reports we've already had for this year alone, and it's not enforceable? That Parliament has told Parliament to form a select committee and think about this. They've done that and they've said, right, this is what we think. But it's not enforceable. It's absolutely madness. So, yet again, like I said, we've had 10 reports into smart motorways this year. We've had 30, 40 since I've been campaigning. Various different bodies, watchdogs, organisations, charities, think tanks, groups. Just it's just ridiculous. Meanwhile, person after person after person is dying, and it. This is like I said. There's only 200 miles of smart motorway at the moment. They want to convert the entire country's motorway network into them. That means every single motorway you go on will be a smart motorway. So what will happen at some point is a coach full of school kids or OAPs or anybody will will be in this position. And if one person by the side of the road is, is vulnerable. 53 people by the side of the road do not stand a chance. And it will happen. And it, it will be a major catastrophe. It's going to be Grenfell. They'll listen when there's a major catastrophe. Well, I, f- I fear you're right, but I hope you're wrong. Uh, that's Claire Mercer, mm-hmm. the widow of Jason Mercer, who was killed on a smart motorway. So time for our regular city update with Ruth Sunderland, business editor at the Daily Mail. So, Ruth, the departure of the Barclays boss in the aftermath of the report into his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. Pretty huge event in the city. It it really is. I mean, this is an absolute shocker. So 
the problem with Des Staley, uh, which is indeed his name, um, is that whilst he was a very brilliant banker, he'd unfortunately made a bit of a string of misjudgments. This was this Epstein one was uh, the worst among them. There had been others, and it had finally got to the point where it had become untenable. Um, this all really centres around whether or not he gave a proper. Uh, accurate characterization of his relationship um, with um, w- with with Jeffrey Epstein, um, and there's some suggestion that he may have um, rather downplayed it. That 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 we don't know exactly what is the case, but that appears to be the case. And of course, Barclays is a hugely important institution in this country. The boss of Barclays, whether it be Jess Daly or somebody else, is the person who's the custodian of millions. Barclays got 24 million UK customers. So, you know, that person's the steward of our mortgages, our savings, our current accounts. So we want to know that that man or woman is morally unassailable, really, and that so are all their associates. So this was this was the problem, a very big deal, really. Yeah, and the, he so he gave evidence to an, an inquiry a couple of years ago. The financial regulator clearly, um, we can't go into too much detail, but clearly was concerned about his replies. Barclays Bank clearly saw this was not going to go away, and effectively he had to go. That, that's ex- that's exactly right. Um, and you know what is what is a shame about this really is that so many people are getting dragged into the toxicity around Jeffrey Epstein. It certainly has permeated into the financial world. A, a chap called Leon Black, who is the chairman and was the chairman and CEO of a venture capital outfit called Apollo, he has also had to stand aside because of his connections. You know, you do wonder, well, where is this all going to end? And I think it's a bit of a shame as well for, for the banking industry more generally. The banks have actually done quite well, believe it or not, during the pandemic. They've been pretty supportive to firms and to individuals and they were trying and and succeeding to a certain extent to rebuild all their reputations which took such a hammering in the financial crisis and something like this just doesn't help It, it it makes people think about the bad old days of Fred Goodwin and when you know banking ethics were a bit of a joke so it's very unfortunate I think Jess Daly was a a, a talented man and could have done a lot for the British banking industry and and unfortunately he has not chosen his friends and associates terribly wisely. Just finally rather like Prince Andrew the mistake he appears to have made he continued the relationship the friendship with uh, Epstein after his conviction for uh, sex with underage girls. Yes, that's right. So um, he actually went so far as to visit um, Jeffrey Epstein after he'd been convicted um, of an offence uh, in, I think this was back in about 2008 or nine. I can't remember the exact the exact date of it, but um, he actually, Jess Staley, went to visit Epstein whilst he was serving a sentence, which is quite staggering. At, at, um, at Staley didn't actually work for Barclays at the time, he worked for J.P. Morgan, and Epstein wasn't physically behind bars. He was on work release. But nonetheless, it's pretty stunning that one of the world's most powerful financiers would think it was appropriate to go and visit a convicted offender under those 
circumstances. Of course, he was a very wealthy convicted offender so, um, yeah. and a very well-connected convicted offender. Um, but even so, it, 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 it's quite, um, quite staggering judgment there. And, and then there was a visit to Paedophile Island as well, um, with Jess Daly and his wife happened to be sailing by on their yacht and decided to push, pop in for lunch, uh, as you do. Um, yeah, I know, but my my, how we must regret ever me talk meeting uh, Jeffrey Epstein. But he won't be the only one in that position, Ruth, will he? Absolutely not, and he's he said as much. And clearly, this is a very very toxic situation, and one that I think we we're far from having heard the last of, haven't we? Because we've we've got the whole Jelen uh, Maxwell. Yeah. Uh, coming up, so so we'll be hearing much more on this topic in in days to come, and perhaps some other people in in the city and on Wall Street feeling a little bit uneasy. I'm sure that's right. That's Ruth Sunderland, business editor at the Daily Mail. So high tech new pillows claim to be able to cure everything from snoring to tinnitus, but do they actually work? The Mail's Adrian Monty looked at some of the top models on the market and ask the experts what they thought. And he joins me now. Uh, are these new, Adrian, or have they been around for a long time? Hi, Andrew. Um, well, they vary, really. Some of them are very new. Um, there's some sort of robot-type pillows, which are, which are very new. And some of them are a little based on ideas which have been around for a while and may have been revamped a bit. But, um, yeah, so there's quite a selection there we, we looked at. Um, and, all, as you say, all sorts of elements from everything from heartburn to uh, hot flushes during the menopause and things like that. So it covered quite a, a wide range of um, ailments and, and issues that people have, really. Now, tinnititis, um, can you explain? Some people might not know what that is. Yeah. Um, why, what is it, Adrian, and why is it so unpleasant? Sure. Well, first of all, it's very common. I think it's about 6 million people in the UK, um, they believe, suffer from it. And what it is, really, is, is it's a kind of a noise that people hear. Um, it's only audible to them. So, so it, it's, it's not an outside noise that's causing this, this problem for them. But they can hear, like, a ringing or a, a blood pulsing, that sort of noise. It's not really their ears, but sort of in their head. So it's, it's sort of yeah. triggered by their brain, really. So, yeah, so, and I know people who, who have it is, is particularly annoying. I know my wife's got it at the moment, so I know how, um, firsthand, really, how irritating it is and very disturbing throughout the day and obviously at night as well. Now, you rated the uh, sound pillow for tinnititis and you gave it 9 out of 10. Uh, how does it work then? How, did, how does, would it have benefited your wife? Yeah, that's great. Well, um, how it works is it's, it's a, it looks like a normal pillow, but inside it's got like a built-in speaker. Um, and so it very discreetly plays um, music or sort of white noise or something like that to sort of relax the person who's got the tinnitus. So they have you drift off to sleep. And you know, I say the, 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 the trick of it is that only they can hear it, so it doesn't disturb the person next to them or, or whatever. Um, and, and the thinking is that tinnitus doesn't really isn't an issue when you go to sleep so if you can just drift off and and and, and, and fall asleep it's not going to bother you then but obviously in the morning you know you gonna wake up and you're probably still going to have possibly have that ringing or that noise in your ears but certainly to, to get you to sleep and a bit more relaxed and maybe face another day of dealing with it it's uh, it sounds a good idea and i know our audiologist who had a look at it she was very, very um uh, enthusiastic about it and, and sort of recommended similar products and, and this one to to her, her patients as well really so yeah so that got a real big thumbs up that one now, there's po- now, a lot of people listening to this think, it's him, my husband, or maybe it's my wife, is snoring, and they're snoring too much now. You've got the, uh, the anti-snoring pillow in here. It's not cheap, Adrian. It's £79.95, 80 quid in other words. Yeah. Does it, does it work? It seems so. I guess, I guess, as you say, the price, I guess, if you want a nice restful sleep, maybe you'd be happy to pay that. But the thinking behind that, again, is that it keeps your head in sort of a fixed position. I think what, what the thinking is that most people snore because they lie on their back and their sort of tongue lolls backwards 
blocks their airway a bit, and that's what causes the, 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 them to snore. So if you can keep you on your side, that's, that, that's one way of, of avoiding that. Um, so this sort of, you lie on, it, it, it seems quite a firm pillow, but, but, but not uncomfortable. But you sort of lie on your side, um, and it's like a little recess there, um, so your face fits into it quite comfortably. And then you sort of stay in that position all night, really, so you're not tempted to roll on your back, which would start the snoring. So, yes, again, our expert was, he, he thought it was a good idea. Interesting, though, he said as well that it's a cheaper solution if you don't want to pay £80 for it. He's suggested to patients in the past to sort of put a tennis ball behind you in bed. So if, if, if you tend to roll over, you'll, you'll automatically roll back, which I thought was interesting. But if you don't want a tennis Very ball interesting. in your bed, um, maybe, maybe yeah. this might be the answer. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure I would want a tennis ball, tennis ball in my bed. Now, what, now this really <laughs> is fascinating. The ageing pillow, it's called Sleep and Glow Omnia Pillow. Blimey, it ought to work at £129. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, that, that was that was an interesting one as well because I, 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 it was news to me. But our, our expert was, was telling me that I think it, when you when you go to bed at night, on on average, this is from various studies, you, you toss and turn about twenty times at night. So you you sometimes you're lying on your front, your side, your back, or whatever. And I think the thinking is when you lie on your side and your front, your your, your the skin on your your face is getting sort of scrunched up and, and causes creases in it. Um, and then if you if you're young, you know, next morning you, you, your skin because of the collagen it bounces back and, and you wouldn't know about it. But as as us a lot of we're getting older. Um, um, our, our skin is not so sort of supple and springy, so it, it, those sort of creases, as it were, stay there. Then, if they're, if they're exposed to the sun or just general aging, it makes it worse. So, this the thinking with this is you, you again, you lie on your back in a, in a fixed, sorry, on your side in a fixed position, yeah. and your cheek is slightly away from the pillow, so there's less surface area touching the pillow to cause these sort of creasing. So, again, interesting idea, but you, it might be a bit of a weird one if you're lying on that with, again in sort of your head in this kind of um, yeah. uh, not kind of vice, is it? But it, but it's just kind of a, a slightly unusual position, really. So, I guess that would take a bit of getting used to. But um, but you know, might make your skin look. Fresh exactly. And, uh... well, I'm, well, I'm up for that. I'm up for that. And I just want to ask you about this one too, because I'm fascinated by this too. So, if you've got sleep problems, you're not sleeping terribly well. Mm. You could, but you could invest in the Somnox yeah. sleep robot if you've got five hundred pounds to yeah. spare. That's that, that again. But this one. That's this, a this staggering is, amount. Yes, it is, isn't it? I mean, and this is a, this is a really new one. It, it's basically it's like a sort of a, a bean shaped little. Um, uh, device. I guess it's about the size of a very small baby or, or a pet. And, it, and, you, and what the, the thinking is, you sort of cuddle it up at night. You don't actually lay your head on it, but you, you cover it close to your chest. And it, it sort of, first of all, it mimics your breathing. So if, if you're breathing very fast, it'll just mimic that. Then gradually, gradually slow your breathing down, which puts you into a more relaxed state. And so in theory, you'll, you'll nod off. Which again is um, it's it's going to work for some people, not for others. But I guess you know um, it's it, it's probably worth a try. But as you say, it's, it's that price tag that comes with it that would put a lot of people yeah. off. And I guess cuddling a soft toy or even even a, even the cat sitting on you or something like that might, might be a cheaper option to try first before yeah. investing all that money in it. But um, you know, interesting way that, that how they think that it might send you off to sleep. And your expert only gave it five out of ten. Yeah, I think he was um, he was he was not convinced. Our, our guy, uh, Dr. Manuel, who's a sleep expert up in Liverpool, I think he just thought. He, I think the, the people who make it say you, you've got to try it for a, you know a, a few weeks and to get the real benefit. And um, you know, as I say, it, it works for some people, but it's not work for others because it's, it does it relaxes you. Which I think I think the, 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 that's that's probably true if you're slowing your breathing down, but from relaxing to going to sleep is, is, is two different things really and, and maybe other things yeah. might keep you awake sort of thing probably worrying about the, how much you spent on this device really uh, exactly awake. exactly <laughs> well look just the last question it's the obvious yeah. question adrian are you going to invest in any of these pillows for your own bedroom am i allowed well, to pry into your bedroom 
Well, he, he, um, I'm not sure. I, I did, I, well, probably won't see to sleep, but I thought it was quite quite fun with this one, this sort of back massage we looked at as well, which, again, yeah. you can put your head on it if you want to, if you've got a bit of some strain in your neck. Um, and it, it just kind of, a bit of heat, and it sort of it gives you a sort of massage effect. And I don't think it's going nice. to sort of um, solve you've got terrible backache or anything like that, but it'd just be quite nice and relaxing after a long day. Um, so maybe that one, and, and that comes in about £70 or so. So maybe I might put that on my Christmas list. Let's put it that way. There we are. Let's hope, let's hope Mrs. Monty's listening. That's Adrian Monty from the Mail reviewing these high-tech pillows. Do read it. It's fascinating stuff. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Good night.